Christ above us, Christ below us, Christ before us, Christ behind us, Christ beside us, Christ be with us. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus can be harsh, and he's harsh today. When I sit in your place and I hear someone preaching on this gospel, I'm curious about the linguistic or interpretive gymnastics are going to do to make the gentle Savior stay gentle when he tells us we have to hate. Well, honestly, Jesus says hate. That's what he says. No person who doesn't hate their brother or sister, their family, can be a follower of him. There's no getting around it. Now, Jesus was ever the pedagogue course, his audience, his crowd of people that were traveling with him was full of devoted followers, but it was also uh, riddled with people who were legalistic types, who were entrenched in some pretty set ways of thinking and doing and living. He's full of Roman subjects who were living under some nasty, violently enforced law codes people who survived by being stuck where they were. So he's saying to these folks especially, listen up, this stuff that I preach, it's hard. Following me can mean leaving behind everything, leaving behind security, leaving behind comfort, leaving behind the familiar leaving behind the old ways of doing things. Jesus is saying to them, in essence, following me might even mean that you have to grow up as a human being. Now, growing up is never easy. We talk in terms of continued growth of the soul even after death. I'm edging ever closer to death because I got that sign of this in the mail when I got my AARP card this week. (laughs) And we um, all continue growing up. I love what one of my college professors used to say. He said, you're only young once, but you can be immature your entire life. But growing up is not an easy thing always. You think back to your teen years when you were in this crucible of hormones and identity and family conflict that is a pretty normal thing. And you knew hatred when you were a teenager. For some of you, this was no joke as you grew into parts of your identity that were difficult, especially during that time when we were teenagers You faced real hatred from family members and from friends. And then a few times a year, I hear at dinner on Wednesday night from a parent, these very sad eyes who probably is a parent of a 12 or 13-year-old, they'll look at me and they'll say, my teenager hates me. And you know, teenagers can be mean. They can say things that really cut to the quick that sound pretty convincing It usually has to do with a time when we tell them they can't do something, like go to Dragon Con by themselves when they're 12. 
And when I was on the dawn of having a teenager in my house, I asked a colleague of mine what it was really like, and he said, well, it's like this. When I walk into the room, my daughter always looks at me like I'm a giant booger. (laughs) But, you know, within this unpleasantness, teenagers are doing some important work as human beings. They are learning how to be different from their families, and when they do so, sometimes they have to resist authority. They have to resist what they know. They have to pull away from their family in order to be themselves. We've all had to reject, sometimes in in really great life-shattering and life-changing ways, and sometimes in little ways, the lives that we knew when we were children in order to live an authentic life in order to become human beings. All of this bluster and vitriol from our teenagers is programmed into their DNA, really. It's programmed in such a way that by the time they end their teenage years, we're ready for them to get out of the house. And they're ready to go and be human beings. So maybe one thing that can give us a line on what Jesus really means when he says that we have to hate our families, you know, however ham-fisted this rhetoric may be, he's saying that we have to do the same work throughout our lives. We must move away from the comfortable and familiar. And, you know, if we think about the church as being a, a, a community that faces developmental work during its life, You know, it's an interesting coincidence that All Saints is 113 years old right now. We are in what could be an exciting institutional adolescence right now, maybe. We face the old All Saints, what we have been for the last 20 years or so, and we also stand before a new All Saints, a potential for a new church that can happen as we welcome in new leadership in a new era of growth and life. But Jesus promises this will not always be an easy thing. But let's not get frustrated here. Let's remember that there is grace for us built into our story All Saints has often embraced this opportunity to move away from the comfortable and familiar. We have in our DNA as a church these impulses, these gentle nudgings that will turn us away from the comfortable towards something that is more like God's kingdom. If you go through and read our history And I encourage you to pick up one of the history books. We have plenty of free copies. Uh, Miss Langford wrote this history for us a few years ago. And if you read this history, you know, we weren't a perfect place. We were creatures of our time, as she says. We were not full of people who were paragons of civility towards all the races and all people. We were not a place that was, in the early part of our history, inclusive or integrated. Even during the civil rights era, there were controversies that threatened to divide this church and even had people leave this church. Like when the big Episcopal school in town would not admit Dr. King's children because it had an institutional policy against admitting African-American people. 
And even wider in the Episcopal community, there were even churches that would not admit African-American people to the communion rail or let them sit in the main body of the church. And we had people that preached against this, and it divided us. It was hard. But there were ministers in this place who were against this kind of thing. Our DNA eventually betrayed the comfort that we all felt back then, perhaps, in this institutional racism. This place had in its DNA uh, such an uprising of the spirit that it raised up people like Judge Albert Tuttle. Judge Tuttle, who has a whole wall devoted to him in the Civil Rights Museum. Under threat of his life and his career, he... He led the way in protecting the constitutional rights of people who were protesting the Jim Crow South. And he led the way in key motions that led to the dismantling of this unfair and un-American and unconstitutional way of life that we were entrenched in as the South and very comfortable with. We had rectors like Frank Ross, who was called here in 1961. And Frank was no radical But eventually, he took the bold step of becoming one of the few white clergy who would go to civil rights protests because he said he knew of other churches in town that were not taking part of this, and he he wanted the world to know that, that not all Episcopal clergy were like that, he said. There's a great story where he's standing in in the square downtown, and one of our prominent members leans out, which was then windows that could open, and said, Frank Ross, what are you doing down there? And he's standing there with three of his friends who are clergy, and he looked up and he said, hey, come on down and join us. And the man slammed the window. But you know, that man stayed here in this church and lived with his discomfort and grew up. We had people like Walter Smith, who in 1965 took youth retreats that were fully integrated. 1965, folks, a time when doing that kind of thing um, could, could, could lead to your being uh, hurt physically, having your life threatened, perhaps even being fired from your job. Walter Smith even held a conference with the Urban League. And let's not forget that during the height of the AIDS crisis in the 80s, there were many places in town that would not hold funerals for young men, mostly young men who died of AIDS and would certainly would not bury them on the church premises. And we held countless funerals for young men who died of this horrible disease. We have resettled families from all over the world regardless of their religious persuasion. We have opened a ministry on this campus for men who are in recovery. We have a place where children can come and get decent clothes to wear to school and find some dignity. All of this has happened because in our DNA, we have been pushed to leave home and grow up and to wade into the discomfort that comes when we head into the unfamiliar. And you know, this gospel doesn't get any easier because Jesus then goes on and he says, well, you also... In addition to hating your family, you have to take up your cross. Now, this was surely offensive for the people of his day. A cross was nothing but an instrument of torture and death 
the people he was preaching to probably had relatives or friends who died upon crosses. But we know that this is the place where Jesus offered himself up with absolute integrity. He offered up his life. And since we know how the story ends, we know that in offering up our lives for others as he did, there is, of course, the hope and grace of resurrection. On this cross is the hope of new humanity. And so we are urged to take up our crosses today. And as we sit in this adolescence as an institution, what will those crosses be? Can we still take up the cross of racism that faces us? Affordable housing, a pitiable state of public education in our community. The fact that horribly mentally ill walk up and down the street without drugs or treatment or a place to live. The fact that children go to bed hungry in this state. And the fact that our state still kills people. Violence in our communities that runs rampant on all ends. Maybe these can be our crosses. These can be the ways in which we turn away from the past and we reject these harbingers of death in the world. So what will be the crosses that we carry, friends? Can this transition be for us a time when we grow up and we wade into the broken places of this city and this world? When we get our parish survey results in a few weeks, will we listen to those results? And when we listen to those stories that we hear, and will we hear in them things that will help us find leadership, that can help us take up our crosses and do the hard work of the gospel? Or are we going to stay home? shy away from leaving the familiar and remain in our adolescence. We are the church right smack in the middle of Atlanta. If we follow this hard gospel, we can be a part of the very heart of Atlanta. If we want to keep being a beacon of hope and truth and light, in this world that is still the last time I checked in need of repair, we have to listen to that DNA that urges us to carry our cross and to move towards those challenges and those messes and continue to turn ourselves towards what is of ultimate worth. We can thrive together then. It's a place full of the work of the Spirit. And in that work, We can find who we are. We can find our true identity. We can become human beings and gain more of our souls in the process and even find God amongst ourselves and in the world. We can find, with this hard gospel, grace and life and love right here. Amen.